Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this podcast helpful. Hello, Recovering God listeners. This month, we are delighted to have Dr. Selena Stone with us. Selena describes herself as a scholar activist, holding together her academic work, both research and lecturing, with the desire to stay connected to her community and create change in the world. Selena is currently working at Durham University as a researcher, trying to improve inclusion and belonging in theological education. She's previously been a lecturer and a community organiser. She's based in Birmingham. I love a bit of uh, Brum representation (laughs) on the podcast. Um, and today, interviewing Selena, we've got uh, Sarah P and Sarah MH. This is our first interview together, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah, it is. Both Sarahs. It's not going to be confusing at all. No, not at <laughs> <laughs> um, So, Selena, we wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about how your understanding of God has evolved over time. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good to be here. This is a huge question because I don't even know like which angle to take to explain this. I think when I was young, when I grew up, I grew up in church, I would say that I understood God to be very, very concerned with me being a good girl and being as close to perfection as possible, that God wanted me to follow all the rules, do all the right things, and then everything would work out fine. And I would say it has, that has completely shattered for me now in both devastating, but also really beautiful ways in that I think now I believe God is so much more concerned with with loving me, with delighting in me, with life being an exploration and an adventure, and that God's greatest joy is for me to be thriving, flourishing, exploring, adventuring, and living this life that I have while I have it. And I think that actually glorifies God who has created me. So I think that's how I now that has probably been the biggest evolution for me in my understanding of God. That's amazing. I love that. Can you tell us a bit about how how that happened for you? Kind of the change from thinking that it that you needed to perform into understanding it was more about how God saw you. That's a really good question, actually. And I'm trying to think what did that for me. I I think it was probably the exhaustion of trying to be perfect that had a huge effect. Was like am I really going to do this like forever? Is it, is this really possible to sustain this, this level of self-denial of kind of, even I'd say even like crushing the self, just trying to fit yourself into a tiny, tiny box. The anxiety that comes with that kind of living of trying to do everything, not wanting to mess anything up, not wanting to take a foot out of the right path. Otherwise, you know, literal fire might burn you, hellfire, you know. All of that stuff, I think, created a lot of anxiety for me. I think the process of unraveling that was a process of little things happening that started to make me think this might not be as straightforward as it as it seems. So trauma is happening in, in the lives of people around me in my own life. So I think about a, a friend that I had at church who was sexually assaulted. And that, for me, was like a major break in my assumptions about what life is like. And the kind of really simple story that I had, my own mom getting cancer, like caring for her, watching her in pain, eventually losing her, 
all of that kind of forced me into this into this brutal realization that life was full of complexity and some of that included a lot of pain and so for me I just thought like like I spent a lot of my life being mainly concerned with being perfect and and earning that approval and as the oldest child of four as the oldest girl I think some of that is also in there wanting to be the good responsible daughter I think going through that the process of grief broke me down to pieces like crushed me into pieces and then I had the space to rebuild myself and 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 I think God was actually in the rebuilding actually because I I had to then relearn well what actually really matters to me if this is what life can really be like if it can be this brutal then how do I want to live the rest of my life and and I think I also found that when I completely lost my faith that God was not anxious about that or or really kind of sending messengers to me from every corner of the earth to warn me about the dangers of hell. God was just kind of very patiently, I think, just hanging out with me and just not speaking to me because I didn't want to hear from God at all. <laughs> but God was just there. And I can see that looking back. And I think the process of of discovering what am I going to put back in the basket? If everything's been thrown out of the basket now, what am I going to put back in? What kind of person do I want to be? How do I want to treat people? And leaning into all of that, I think, has been a part of the journey. I'm still on the journey too, I think. Thank you for that. I think that's a journey that a lot of people will resonate with, maybe not the exact particularities, but actually that journey of figuring out who God has made us to be and how we can be that person, not the other person that people think we should be. And actually finding there's a God who rejoices and celebrates in us doing it our own way. Um, so I'm really intrigued to know during that journey and through that unpacking and that repacking, you know, did feminism influence you at all during that time or was it not part of the picture at all for you? I think probably, I don't think I've really thought much about feminism growing up, honestly. I think that I grew up in a world where I didn't really think I really grew up in very strict gender boundaries and gender binaries. In the sense that in my home, my parents had a relatively traditional setup in that my mom was a stay-at-home mom, my dad was at work. But my dad cooked and um, my mom was doing courses here and there and eventually went back and had her own career when we were all in school. And at church, I saw women around just leading and doing their thing, women preachers, women leaders, women who I know had good jobs who drove their own really nice car. Like I, I always used to notice that at church, like, ooh, that's a nice car that she has. Or they, and they dressed really amazingly. And I thought, oh, these women are icons, like literally icons in church every week. So I didn't grow up feeling disempowered about being a girl. And my dad would like treat us very similarly in the sense that I would like go outside and help mix cement with my brothers and my brothers would learn how to cook. So I don't, I didn't grow up in a world where, gender was a kind of fixed thing in in my mind at least although I started to become more aware of the wider social issues especially at school you learn about the suffragettes you start to understand that actually the world can be unfair for women and then I think as I grew older in church I started to see that there were certain avenues that were closed off to women in leadership and so I started to become more aware then of like actually I think I need to think a bit more about what I believe but it wasn't until I was doing 
theology, I would say, that I really had any feminist, like I'd say like academic work, any feminist thinking. I did not think I even came across very much. I did, I did a little bit in France, actually. I did a module in France, like a semester in France. And we read Simone de Beauvoir. And that was probably the first time I read some feminist literature, now that I think of it. But it wasn't the kind of go-to sort of like place for me thinking about life at the time. We wondered if you would be able to talk to our listeners a little bit about womanism and how that might differ from feminism and how you've kind of discovered that through your studies um, and into the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I love womanism. I think I, when I first understood what womanism was, I thought this is exactly how I see the world. And this is actually a really helpful lens for me to see the world. So womanism emerges in the U.S., um, and I'm thinking about like, the 1980s, really, where the kind of first key pieces of work start to be produced by academic scholars, although they would say that womanism has existed in practice, like for ages, which is probably the same thing for feminism. And like women have been fighting for their rights and they've been doing all this stuff. They've been doing that critical thinking about the Bible, just not in, in, in a university context. And the scholars are kind of catching up with what's been happening in churches around the world or the country. And so womanism developed really because black women are saying, actually, we're caught between two different spaces. Like on the one hand, we have black theology, who are, which is saying we need to think a lot about black life. But actually, that doesn't always take into consideration the particular things black women face. And on the other hand, they've got white feminist scholars who are doing a lot of work on gender but none of it is dealing with the particular experiences of black women. So womanism emerges because black women scholars are saying, well, we have to kind of, we have to deal with race, yes, but we also have to deal with gender. How do we do the kind of work that holds these realities together? And and so womanism sits at that intersection of race and gender. But what I really love about it, and there's kind of some disagreement about what womanism is exactly with all these kinds of fields anyway, But what I really love about womanism is the way that it expands beyond just thinking about gender and race. So it gives room to talk about things like class, because actually for African-American women who who founded this study, they're dealing with a lot of women who are living in poverty, women who are descendants of enslaved African women. So for them, class becomes a major part of the conversation. And then you could add into that disability sexuality you could add ecology into it because we're thinking about the environmental issues and the impact that these issues have disproportionately on black and brown women in the world so we end up bringing up a whole range of other themes and that's why I love womanism because it feels expansive it feels like there's room for lots of different groups of people for lots of experiences to be held together rather than thinking we have to like choose one thing and then only talk about that. Thank you so much for that. I think it all, some of our listeners may be au fait with intersectionality and some won't, but you're right, it opened up the conversation to say, look, there is particular injury that happens when you're in the middle of these two roads. When you are at the intersection, you are facing traffic from both directions. And it's not necessarily about saying this more or less, it's just saying particular danger happens at these places. And we know that feminism has limitations in lots of ways, like you've mentioned, it's not always good at accounting for class or for disability, and it's particularly poor on race. But I'm intrigued to know from your perspective, what do you see as some of the limitations of feminism? 
in the UK? I've been thinking about this a lot personally, honestly, because I've been talking and listening to the men in my family, the friends that I have, and trying to understand like what's gone wrong in the conversation because it feels as if we're at a point now where we have a new a, a new rising misogyny online. People like Andrew Tate and and it's and, and really garnering major support along uh, from a lot of people in a way that is quite shocking and surprising for those of us who assumed we left these times behind us. And lots of people who are susceptible to hearing these kinds of views online because the algorithm will just send you nonsense videos and you'll just watch one after the other and, and think that it's an expert because it's on the internet. And so, so and the kind of like fake, not even fake news, but misinformation being spread so easily about the history of gender and power and all these issues. And that for me is the most terrifying thing. It's, it's so many people now are being held up as experts with no accountability for what they're claiming to know or how they know it. I think that's right. You know, we blame the internet and and I'm not always sure people but people, right? But you're right, on TikTok and things like that, it can be really scary. One of my favourite TikTokers that I follow uh, stitches these videos of, of men saying the most outrageous things with a song that she wrote entitled Stop Giving Men Microphones. (laughs) <laughs> and it is my favorite thing it's just her kind of going come on sing it with me stop giving men microphones and I, I want to get it on a top I want to wear it because actually just, you know stop selling them um maybe we'd we wouldn't have so much issues I, I do think like for me I'm interested in how do we have a conversation that actually engages with people who are seriously just sipping on this Kool-Aid because I'm wondering what's gone wrong I'm like is it that feminism's been amazing and I'm thinking about and I guess the feminism has been amazing at teaching women about what it means for us to speak up for ourselves naming the particular challenges we face across the board and and it's done a really good job of, of creating a movement of women who are willing to fight for basic human rights okay but at the same time, I don't know whether there has been a same focus, effort. Some would say it's not been feminism business to have to do this, but has there been a, a kind of concerted effort to articulate why this is necessary, what this does and doesn't mean in relation to men? And again, maybe I'm being overly gracious. Maybe this has actually been done perfectly fine and or perfectly well. But I do wonder whether there's a there's, there's a, a need to figure out, well, what does it mean for us to live in the world as whole flourishing women in relationship with men? Because we can't avoid men. We can't get rid of men. And and not, nor do we want to necessarily. Maybe particular ones <laughs> that we might know, but not as a whole. <laughs> not as a whole. And so like and so what does it mean for us to to, to, to hear what men are anxious about. And I know that can sound annoying for us to say we need to hear what men are anxious about. But my fear is that by not doing that, more men end up listening to certain voices on the basis that, well, no one's listening to men. So how do we kind of learn, listen to what men are saying so we can better articulate, not so we can change what we're doing because we're doing what we're doing, but to better articulate what what this is all about. Because I, I wonder whether part of their the oversimplification of feminism has led to some of this kind of conflict 
and, and I'm thinking particularly about black men I know who will say to me, listen, I have a white woman boss who treats me like rubbish at work. So what is this? Why right? is this, is this patriarchy in operation? And this is, this is where white feminism has its limitations because if you don't talk about race, then you end up assuming that as a white woman, you're only ever the victim of unjust systems that you might not ever be the perpetrators. And so actually being able to talk about power and race and class and race is really important alongside talking about gender. And that's where I think feminism has 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 its limitation in not holding together those kinds of complexities. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the people who um, embody some of the concepts of womanist theology, maybe some people that you've met through study, but also just people like in your day-to-day life that inspire you. I mean, the first people I think of are people in my day-to-day life, you know, and, 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 and this is why I think it's important to say that womanism, feminism, all the kind of the, the the ideas that scholars write about so often are just articulating what's already been done in people's lives all the time. So I immediately think about my grandmothers. I think about my grandmothers and their just determination to just not take rubbish. Like my my grandmother, my dad's mom, was like known for quitting jobs where people were just disrespectful to her. Like in the 60s where there's like no safety net. She'd just like walk out of her job. Be like, don't ever that. speak to me like that. I'm leaving. <laughs> And I'm like, with all my like credentials, I would not do that. My grandmother came here with like nothing but the willingness to work hard. And she's willing to just walk away from a job because somebody has been disrespectful to her. But that was such her sense of dignity that she wasn't going to allow people to, to stand on her sense of dignity and to stomp it down. I think about women like that. And she was a praying woman as well. So for her, her faith was was it was radical and it was political. It it was elegant and it was strong and it was determined and it was vivacious. And so I think of women like her. I think about women like my mom who were determined to she my mom worked as a teacher after being a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. And actually she's somebody who for me represents the kind of solidarity that I wish I had the courage to also embody. I remember her lending, I say lending money, giving money to a woman on our road who her husband was an alcoholic and so he'd spend all the money on on drink. And she'd ring our doorbell every now and then. And I and she'd ask my mom for money. And my mom at the time wasn't even working. So she's literally giving out of her little Avon money at the she was doing Avon at the time. And she'd be giving a bit of money to this lady on the road who lived there. And I used to get annoyed because I used to be like, I want some ice cream. And you said no. And now you're giving money to this stranger. <laughs> and she'd say, you know, if you have something someone needs, you should give it to them. And she was demonstrating solidarity with this woman. She'd go and ring the bell and check on her, make sure she was okay. Because there was also domestic violence going on in that house as well. And I think... I kind of, I saw these women growing up and they embodied for me something of a real, a real active faith that wasn't just about singing at church and thinking about heaven, although they did do that, but there was something about it that was real, that was grounded in real life that I think is really quite inspiring and captures what I think womanism is really about. I love that. I love those. They are stories of embodiment, aren't they? Of taking the principles and like living Mm -hmm. them out. Um, yeah, I just think they're beautiful. Thank you for sharing those. 
if some of our listeners were wanting to find out a bit more about like the origins of womanism or kind of the, I guess, some of the concepts behind it, are there any books that you would point people to or people that they should be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say for a, like an old school, like you have to read this book, Dolores Williams, Sisters in the Wilderness is the iconic book in womanist theology. Like this, I think, is a first attempt to articulate and demonstrate what womanist theology is about using Hagar as the kind of core character in the text. It's quite accessible as well. It's not a super wordy book, which I really love. So that's something I always recommend. Uh, Jacqueline Grant has a book called White Women's Christ, Black Women's Jesus, which is also really helpful for explaining why womanist theology is needed and what the limits of feminist theology are. So that is another really helpful book. Something that's more contemporary and I think quite progressive, Candice Bembo, Red Lip Theology. Red Lip Theology is be, has been, to me, such an interesting very contemporary kind of womanist theology. And it's a it's not academic at all. It's like you can pick it up, read it on the bus, on the train, wherever. And it, and it's mainly told through her own sense of her own stories, her own experiences. She wrestles with theology, wrestles with God, themes around grief, sexuality, purity, culture, all that stuff, in a way that I think so many people have resonated with. So I would res- I would suggest those three books if I had to choose. Thank you so much for that, Selena. I'm sure that's going to be um, a little bunch of book orders for our listeners. I just want to move a little bit because, Selena, you have your own podcast, uh, which is fabulous. And it's been really fun listening. I keep uh, putting it on as I'm walking around when I go on my daily walk. And you've spoken about uh, a lot of things I thought was really interesting about the shame that young women are taught around their bodies. And that's something that I think a lot of our listeners will relate to and resonate with. And it's something I've spoken about on online before is about the you know, the effects of purity culture and what I still carry in my body and all of those sort of things. We have listeners um, on our podcast who are in positions of power or positions of authority of all genders. Is there something that you would like them to know or to do differently, reflecting on your own experiences of being a young woman in the church? It's a really good question, you know. And part of me wonders whether leaders need to do things or whether they just need to not do certain things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm thinking, actually, I probably would have, might have been okay if people hadn't done certain things, like really policing what women wear in church, particularly women. So not having a general conversation about how we dress to come to church and again there's arguments about the extent to which that's even anyone's business but if if you are going to go down that road then then kind of holding women up as a prime examples of that don't do it don't 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 do it that would be the first thing I think I also would say something I heard a lot was was sermon illustrations or comments made from the pulpit kind of like just throw away comments that you kind of think don't make that much of an impact. But over months and years starts to seep into the subconscious. The little flippant comments about that woman who looks so-and-so or who had this kind of attitude or that kind of, it, it just kind of feeds into some of their existing prejudices people can have about 
what it means to be a woman and to be a good woman in particular, those kinds of comments, you know, talking about women with certain like ball buster, those kinds of silly labels, you know, um, those kind of things that people think are so harmless start to play into how women think about themselves, about what their bodies can be in the space of the church. So I think that's probably, I, I say it's more what people shouldn't do than should do. I, I, I think one of the things probably we could be mindful of, and by we, I just mean, I don't mean we, I mean people who lead churches and things. Because I'm clear that I don't, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Is um, just have different kinds of bodies on the stage and, and around, make different kinds of bodies visible. This is important to me. And this isn't even, this isn't even a race thing. This is just a bodies thing, right? Like we, I've been to some churches where there is just a type of body that you see everywhere all the time. And it's the, it's the slim body with the tight jeans, not tight, but slim jeans, definitely not tight jeans. And the kind of cool neutral colored t-shirt maybe, or their, or the jeans and the cool t-shirt type body, um, and it's just, it's just not how the world looks, does it? So it's just, it's like, what world is it that we're showing here in, on this, in this church building? And again, growing up, that wasn't my experience. Like I saw all kinds of bodies in church, celebrated. And I think some of that's cultural because I think in black communities, like the bigger, the better is usually the, the general feeling. Whereas I think in more European contexts, it's like slimmer is better. I think in our church, we saw people of all body types, all body shapes, all colours, all shades at the front, looking great, serving, leading, doing all kinds of things. But I think in other cultural spaces, that's less likely to be seen. And I think all of that can feed into a person's sense of insecurity about their body in the space of the church. So I think that's that's really important, I think. That's really important. And I, I think encouraging positive thoughts and perspectives on the body, on desire, on sexuality, on sensuality, all of that stuff is, is important. Taking the time in, in sermons, in the, in the preaching, in the reflecting on the Bible to draw out those messages in the text um, and, and resist this, the temptation to present a kind of dualistic perspective where we have to suppress and um, even like hurt the body in order to be more spiritual resisting the temptation to always sit in that perspective and not celebrate the body and mm. what it is for us to be alive because of course we are we say at least that we have a faith that centers around a god who took on flesh and thought that was a good thing but then so much of our thinking our talking our preaching contradicts that because it's constantly telling us the body is bad desire is bad feelings are bad and actually we need to I think resist that as much as we can in the songs, in the messaging, in, in everything that we're doing. I think there's a like generation of people at the moment who grew up with some kind of purity culture. And I've had chats with friends recently about, well, what we know that that was super unhelpful and it has left us with a whole heap of baggage. But I've got um, two girls, but what do, so I'm thinking, well, what do I teach them though? Because in one sense, the church aren't really yeah. talking about it now. It's kind of like, well, we're kind of leaving behind the mess of purity culture, but we're replacing it with absolutely nothing. So there's this big void of, okay, so how are we going to teach the next generation about their bodies, about sexuality, you know, all that kind of stuff. I've had chats with friends who are youth mm -hmm. leaders who are saying, you know, it's not purity culture, but what is it? 
and I think that's a huge challenge I don't necessarily have any answers to that it's just something I'm yeah, thinking about yeah, at the yeah, moment yeah. me and my friend were talking literally the other day saying I like what do we tell our daughters about this stuff now like we know what we don't want them to to get but what do we tell them and, and, I, and I was saying to my friend I think that a lot of us have been taught that there's only one way that we can imagine there being a Christian ethic around sex and sexuality. And that is that we suppress and suppress and suppress until we get married to someone of the opposite sex. And in that context, it's great and it's beautiful. You can do whatever you like. And I think that the problem is that there's a whole spectrum. And and I think what happens is that we then assume that if you don't sit in that camp, then what you're advocating is for just orgies everywhere. Like there's no (laughs) in-between and nothing apart from heterosexual and heterosexual marriage. And so we don't even explore like what other options there might be. So, so what does it mean to have a Christian sexual ethic around consent, around flourishing in our sexuality that still is going to involve boundaries? It's still going to involve caring about yourself, caring about your neighbor. It's going to involve STI checks so that you are well and your neighbor is well. It's still going to involve mutuality and consent, but it just might not look like what we've been told it has to look like. And so I think... There has to be room to me to explore how do we talk about sex positively? Because I hear, like, I grew up hearing, you know, we love sex as long as you're married to a a person of the opposite sex. I'm like, well, that's not quite the same thing as, you know, a a real celebration of sexuality. And again, I don't think that has to mean it's just reckless sex with anyone. But I think we have to play around with what does it mean for us to, to have a healthy sexual ethic that isn't that that we can actually work with in practice yeah to me it comes back to celebration and consent it's about celebrating our bodies celebrating our sexuality celebrating all the things that are part of our sensual and that part of ourselves that you know that whole arena of our life and consent, mm. consent in every interaction that we have and checking back yeah. in with that consent all kinds of friendships and interactions and conversations and consent to say, would it be okay if we talk about, da, 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 you know? So, I yeah, I come back to celebration and, and consent as the kind of uh, antidote to, to suppression and to rules. And I include yes. rules given from on high that dictate how and mm. what I can do with my body and use shame to enforce their behaviour. Yeah, yeah. I like that, Sarah. Like, uh, lots to ponder there. I spent some of Christmas uh, enjoying your podcast, Selena. So I was like, oh, there's a whole series to listen to. So when I could get, uh, you know, 20 minutes without smaller ears around, I was really enjoying listening to your podcast and got through the whole thing. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about it and a little bit about um, why you started it. So it's called Sunday School for Misfits. We'll get that in now. Um, available all all podcast uh, podcasting apps and you know all of that malarkey same place you can find ours um but yeah please do tell us a bit more about it yeah I mean I I started this because I went on a retreat in the summer and I really I was changing jobs and I used to teach in my old job and I was really missing the idea of sharing thoughts with people and at the same time I was feeling really concerned that there was this growing gap between like interesting theology that I was doing in the classroom and my friends and family, the people I grew up with who were wrestling with like major questions and yet had no resources to help them to think it through. And so that was how the podcast was born, was me thinking, how do I offer 
some thoughts to my friends, the people I grew up with, who were figuring out what on earth to do with their faith now. They might have lost it. They might be holding on by a thread. <laughs> but like, what? how do I offer something that helps them to process what they're dealing with? Because I grew up in a Pentecostal world where, you know, you, you there's a list of doctrinal beliefs and that's what makes you a Christian. And um, as well as living a, a very holy life, often playing into a lot of the purity messaging, and yet many of us have realized that life is a lot more complicated than we were than we were told it would be. And we haven't had a, a kind of any guidance really in what do we do now when your faith completely crumbles, what do you do next? How do you get like figure out what you're gonna keep out of the ashes, if anything? And 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 for me, the podcast is is trying to help people do that. Uh, and it's holding together like a range of different people. So it's always like, how do I speak to all these different groups of people at the same time? And people who I, who I, I wouldn't expect to listen to it at all are listening to it. And I'm just like, this is amazing. And and so that, that's really why it exists is to help people who are processing faith. And I, I have in my mind when I'm doing it, I've said it's like a black millennial space to think about faith. But actually, the more I do is the more I realize this is just everybody's problem. <laughs> And so, like, I have so many of my ex-students listening to this. They're like, I know I'm not in the target demographic because it's like some 60-year-old white guy. And I'm like, yes, sure. But he, they, they, people are really resonating with it. And so it's feeling like a healing space. Like, so many people have used that word of healing with me about how they're finding it, which for me is just, it's just everything really to hear that. And so I feel really grateful to be able to offer that to people. I really do. Thank you. Please do go check it out, uh, listeners. You will not be disappointed. So uh, finally, we've had a bit of a change in the question. So we're asking everyone now as a final question, can you offer us one line of encouragement to Christian women today? Oh, just one line. That's hard. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two. I'll be generous. I talk for a living, so this is, this is still <laughs> very difficult. Um I, I think I'd go back to what I said in the beginning about the way that I think God's real desire for us is is thriving, is adventuring, it's joy. And to be unafraid to explore and pursue that in our lives. That's what I would say. Oh gosh, Selena, it's been so good to chat to you. Like I've just absolutely loved this. From the minute I first heard your podcast, I was like, we have got to get Selena on Recovering God. So thank you for your time. (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. And thank you for what you've shared of yourself. It's just been an absolute delight. And we can't wait for our listeners to get to listen in to this conversation as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. Well, welcome back. So we're here to do the outro today and we have got Sarah P back with me and we've got Amy. Hi, Amy. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello. It does sound, yeah, I did go very Friday night dinner there. I didn't really mean (laughs) to. Um, So you may have noticed, uh, listeners, that there wasn't an intro to this podcast. We just threw you straight in with the interview. And that's one of the things that's come out of our feedback is um, we've kind of made some changes. So we've just got this outro section. So we've got a bit of time to discuss the speakers and what we thought about it. Um, But we're going to go straight in with the speakers usually. So hopefully that works for you. Hopefully you enjoy it. Also, that means they could just delete us as well at the end. They could just, yeah, they could you just turn stop. off. Don't yeah. worry about it. You've done the interview. Ignore us. 
but no, and you've also possibly noticed we've changed our music up. It's a little jazzy. So we, we're really listening and we're really trying to give you the best possible podcast we can. Uh, don't worry, we're not changing everything, but we like making little tweaks here and there. So without further ado, what a podcast, what an interview. There was so much in there. I've just sat and listened to it a few different times. And there's just so many bits that I keep coming back to and coming back to. So to vaguely order thoughts chronologically, right from the beginning of that um, interview, one of the things that really uh, struck me was the way that Selena talked about how their understanding of God had changed and how at the beginning their view of God was someone who you had to keep on the right side and you had to be a good girl and you had to follow all the rules. And that's something I definitely resonate with. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I did actually when I was looking through because we we go through the podcast and like you, Sarah, you you pulled out some quotes and so I was rereading them again earlier when I before I came on, and it actually really resonated when it says when I when I was young I understood good to be God to be very concerned with me being a good girl and being as close to perfection as possible and I remember and also she said then God wanted me to follow all the rules. And I remember, gosh, that was so me. Like I was in a world with sort of white middle class Christianity, Baptist Christianity, coming from a working class, single parent, poor family. And I felt like I needed to follow all the rules I was being taught because, you know, and um, and I used to fail miserably. And so I used to do these massive crash and burns, you know, and then try and get back on the straight and narrow because God wants me to be a good white middle class girl and then then I'd crash and burn so that really resonated for me until I realized that that's not what God needed me to be I just wonder if you would do what I used to do and kind of recommit your life again and again and again because like I mean I probably went forward for every article that was ever going because I was so incredibly aware of how much I'd messed up the previous week or you know the previous couple of weeks so if there was ever a call to go forward again and recommit your life I knew that I'd messed up, so I would constantly be going forward. I dread to think how many times I, you know, became a Christian again just to make doubly sure that I was on the right side of it all. Do you know, I hadn't thought about this for years, but I absolutely did that. And what's mad is, so I wasn't part of an altar call uh, culture at all, but like in my bed at night on my own would pray the Jesus prayer again and again. And I think this is possibly the first one I did. It was probably six or seven. And up until the age of maybe 12, 13, I must have done it again and again. And isn't it so fascinating that that was the experience? Um, I didn't come into church till I was 14, but certainly, you know, from that point onwards, I definitely had an encounter with God as a teenager. But the kind of fear of maybe messing it up or God, you know, having enough of me and the way that I was living my life, it was like, right, well, I better just make sure again and make sure again. And So I was 16 when I became a Christian and so, yeah, even talking about that is even later. So, you know, I've got friends being like, oh, no, you know, I wanted to, I fancied like a, you know, a, a non-Christian guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like I had a one night stand and stuff and been drinking and going out at night, you know, it's just like, and but I knew that, you know, it was just so all these like dichotomies of like middle classness of kind of being the good girl in church and oh you know rebellion was you know being rude to your parent or something and mine is like going out drinking three nights of the week you know and like doing goodness knows what but but knowing that God loved me 
and that and and knowing that I, I still want I couldn't couldn't live without God so it was like God just loved me so much so that that power of God yeah just power of God loving me even though I mucked up mucked up but that message is so true like throughout scriptures we're talking about how God's love is constant and God's graciousness is bigger than I imagine him. So then I start to think about, well, who is benefiting from a culture that is, we've all got to be good girls and um, we've all got to follow the rules all the time. If you're locked in guilt, you're not trying to revolt, you know, or strike or change the system. You're too busy worrying about your state of your eternal soul to speak the truth to power, to say, hey, where are we investing our money? Is it ethical investment as a church? Or, hey, why is the leadership team all male? Or, hey, I've noticed we're quite exclusionary to people who come in that don't fit the bill. We don't ask any of those questions. We're we're too busy feeling guilty about breaking the rules. God's not in that system of guilt. And that's what I think really brought me back to her quote, where she talks about, actually, God wants me to be thriving and flourishing, exploring, adventuring and living the life. That's where God is. I think there's something really formulaic as well about that system of guilt and shame in that it's kind of easy to follow in that you can you can follow the steps and get the desired outcome, I guess. So it's quite attractive because in a vast expansive space can be quite daunting to some people so it's easier to tie everything up in a bow and have these kind of you know I remember like the 10 steps to salvation or whatever and you know you kind of worked your way up through those or you worked someone that you were ministering to through those steps when you take the system away it all falls to pieces and I think probably all of us have experienced that and Selena was certainly talking about that as well as her experience. The difference is is about wanting to know God right so you might be messy it might be different it might not be how everyone else is living or whatever but that inner desire to know God means well the Bible literally says you want to know God you love God that's what I think is really important is you desire to know God even in imperfection and then when you know God you you know you love God and so that will carry you through any kind of struggle maybe I'm waffling probably waffling you love your waffle Amy I am waffling (laughs) Finding a spirituality, a faith that carries you through ups and downs can set you on a firmer footing. But you're right, that can be, Sarah, you're right completely, that can be a lot harder to find. And it probably won't fit in a pamphlet you can pass out at a church dinner, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things you were saying earlier, Amy, is about about class and about the difference that class that has. And and we know British society, like many other societies, is deeply class-based. And one of the things that's interesting about what Sarah's talking about, about womanism, is for her it allows space for, for race and for gender, but it also gives space to for issues like class. It's where we can pay attention yeah. to the injuries that can occur on all of those lines. I think it's important to have this, like, intersectionality I, I was actually talking to my husband a while about about it because he's white and was bought a male and brought up mid, very middle class and we're quite different and and sometimes he's like a bit, little bit dismissive about intersectionality and then I had to explain what intersectionality actually was um and I said you know you just can't deny these differences and how they can affect people in a negative way the British system has always been very class-based probably similar to India you know they have a they have a class system within their sort of religion. I think it's important to recognise class, um, and especially when we're talking about um, 
church because I think it is a massive issue. It's about who gets a seat at the table, isn't it? And actually, quite a lot of the time, people, for all sorts of reasons, don't get a seat at the table. I think also it's about who's who's writing the narrative. So, you know, historically, we know that an awful lot of theology has been written by not just white men, but white, highly educated men um, who would have existed within, the, you know, the middle, higher classes. So when that's the narrative that everyone's following and that those are the kind of people that are interpreting the bible and you know and the translations we've got and stuff it becomes incredibly problematic yeah so we have to be really intentional about actually finding different voices you just do because it's so easy you know probably if you spoke to you know the average pew sitter in an evangelical church they probably probably barely count on one hand the amount of books that have been advertised to them that are written by women, unless it's for women, like women Bible studies. It's like we need to be reading theology from working class people, from uh, non-white people. I think we're lacking in that massively still. Like, that's still a massive issue. I think it's really important that we do consider when we talk about feminism, we're not all in, we're not all in the same boat. We're in different situations and actually... When we consider our position in feminism, we have to consider lots of other things as well. Your race has an impact, your sexuality has an impact, your class has an impact, all of those things. It doesn't just run along gender lines. And that, again, was another thing that really jumped out to me uh, from Selena, which is that um, this is where white feminism Mm. has its limitations. Because if you don't talk about race, you end up assuming that as a white woman, you are only ever the victim of unjust systems, that you might never be the perpetrators. And that's so true, because when we see ourselves as victim, you cannot see yourself as perpetrator. You can't hold those two identities together. I think that's a big issue in the church. You know, I do think we have to really have that conversation. That, you know, yes, I realise that, you know, you've been a victim like us women in complementarian spaces and things. But the reality is, like you say, being white or being middle class, you know, it's, um, you know, you might be absolutely, yeah, perpetrating certain aspects of a privilege because it benefits you. And to to really recognise that. So I think we have to keep having these conversations, which is why it's great to have Selena on and to remind us to have these conversations we can talk about this for ages we got so much out of this podcast and this interview if you love him from selena please do go check out her podcast sunday school for misfits you can hear loads more from her um, i think that's all i need to say is thank you sarah and amy for a cracking discussion thank you sarah bye bye Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Recovering God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.